As you take a seat, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, as we continue to make our way through this wonderful little letter. And you might remember last week, Jason walked us through these three wonderful pictures of Christian endurance, the good soldier, the disciplined athlete. And the diligent farmer, we saw that in verses 3 through 7. So our focus this week in 2 Timothy 2 will be 8 through 13. As Paul reminds us, really the, uh, the essence of Christian endurance, the key to Christian endurance is keeping our eyes on Jesus. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. And as always, let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our living God. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The sum of God's word is truth, and every one of his righteous rules endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess, Lord, that we are so prone to doubt and fear and forgetfulness. Even though we know you are faithful, we've seen your faithfulness in sending your son to die for our sins, and yet we are still prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. So Father, we ask this evening that you would write your word on our hearts so that we would trust and obey you. Help us, Lord, to lean not on our own understanding but to acknowledge you in all of our ways, knowing that you will faithfully keep your word and make our path straight. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we just read one of the, probably the strangest and maybe one of the most important commands in Scripture. Bet you didn't even know it was that strange because we're so used to it in some ways. But it's right there in verse 8. Right at the beginning of verse 8, it says, remember Jesus Christ. That might not sound strange to us, but it, it can almost be a little bit unnecessary if we really think about it. I mean, kids, think about your life. Do you have to be reminded to, to sleep? Some of you sleep like anywhere you are, right? And teenagers want to stay up all night, so that's a different story. But, um, and you don't, have to be, don't even have to be reminded to eat, do you? But Jesus is way more important than food. And rest, and yet we're called to remember him. Adults, you have to be reminded to remember your kids? To remember your wife? Remember your husband? I certainly hope not. 
Our whole lives revolve around each other. So we think, well, why in the world would we be asked to remember Jesus, who is even more important in our life than our husband or our wife or our kids? Plus, what I think makes this really strange is who this command is to. It's to Timothy. What does he spend every single day, every single minute of the day doing? He's remembering Jesus, isn't he? He's in God's word. He's trying to help other people remember Jesus. So it's kind of a really strange command if you think about it in that way. But we need it because it's a very important and necessary command, isn't it? Because sadly, we know we live in a fallen world where God's people throughout scripture and us included constantly are prone to forgetfulness. Think of Israel in countless moments. The moment that first came to my mind is when they get to the promised land, right on the edge of the promised land in Numbers 13. And they get the first glimpse of those Canaanites and they think, oh, they're big and scary and powerful. We can't defeat them, right? That's what they say. They're too strong. We can't take them on. Now, I read that at times and I think, you've got to be kidding me. You just came from Egypt. You saw what God did to Pharaoh's army. How could you forget that? How could you forget all those plagues and the Red Sea? You'd think that God can't take out the Canaanites too. They're forgetting their God. Or think of Judges, which I actually believe is almost a cycle of forgetfulness. Because every time, God delivers them with a new judge. And they're delivered. There's peace in the land. What happens every single time? They forget their God. They run right back to idols, and then they eventually get so bad where their enemies are causing them a problem, and then God gives them a new judge to deliver them. And then they're right back to idolatry again. It's this cycle of forgetfulness, isn't it? Now, lest we think that we're above all that in this new covenant, New Testament age, let's remember what Jesus told his church, his people, when he instituted the Lord's Supper. He did not say, look, take this, take the bread, take the cup, do this once or twice, you'll get the hang of it. You'll, you'll remember and kind of get the point, and then you can move on with your life. But what did Jesus say? He said, do this as often as you drink it. In other words, regularly, when you get together, how or why, excuse me, in remembrance of me. What's the implication there? We are forgetful people too, aren't we? We forget even the Lord we love. We're prone to wonder, prone to leave the God we love. So we too need regular reminders of Christ to persevere in faith because our hearts are our idle factories. And those idle factories lead us to walk away, to commit apostasy, to walk away from the God we love. And that's Paul's point in this passage. Essentially, what he's teaching here is the key to Christian endurance. The essence of Christian perseverance is remembering Jesus Christ. That's what it comes back to time and time again. Remember Jesus Christ. And he actually breaks that down into kind of three things or three truths to remember about Jesus Christ in these few verses. First, we need to remember Christ's resurrection. His resurrection in verse 8. Second, remember Christ's word in verses 9 and 10. And third, remember Christ's faithfulness. Christ's faithfulness to his people in verses 11 through 13. So let's look at verse 8 together as we remember Christ's resurrection. Listen to what Paul says, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Now it's interesting to me, why does Paul run to the resurrection so fast? 
He could have said a lot of things to encourage Timothy at this point. Remember your, your faithful shepherd because this shepherd, Paul, is about to die. Remember your great high priest. Remember your redeemer. But he runs right to the resurrection. Why? I think it's a really easy question to answer. Because Timothy is facing death, isn't he? Just like Paul. Just like all the Christians in this day. And if Paul, their fearless leader, is martyred by Nero, the church knows that, well, if he can kill Paul, they're coming after me next. So Timothy and his church needs a hope in the face of death. And so Paul runs right to the resurrection because the resurrection proves, it shows the church that Christ has defeated all our greatest enemies. He has defeated Satan, sin, and yes, death. That is our great hope. In fact, listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, talking about the victory we have over the grave. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the grave dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the grave will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, Timothy, you realize that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead will raise you from the dead. And not just that, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. Why? Because you are still in your sins. Well, that teaches us right there that if Christ didn't raise, we're stuck in sin and condemnation. But because of Christ's resurrection, we have victory over Satan, sin, and death. We will rise from the dead with no condemnation. That is our hope. And in light of that, Nero and the false teachers and the persecution are nothing when you know that your Lord is risen from the dead. And that's why he runs to the resurrection. But Paul doesn't stop there. He continues to build his confidence in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, and listen, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Now again, why would Paul run to David? And not even really just David here, he's focusing on the offspring of David, the son of David. I think what Paul's doing here is he's saying, Christ hasn't just risen, he's your risen king. He's the one that is in charge. He's, he's not just the Davidic Messiah who is truly man. We needed that. We also needed someone who's truly God and Jesus is both. We also needed somebody to conquer Satan, sin, and death. But because Christ has risen from the grave as the son of David, that means he will sit on God's throne for all of eternity. That was the promise given to David, wasn't it? In 2 Samuel 16. And if Christ is risen, that means he's ruling and reigning right now. Praying for us, interceding for us, working all things for our good and for God's glory, as Romans 8 says. And if Christ is ruling and reigning right now, then our king will return. He will come back to judge the living and the dead, to bring his church home, as Revelation 22 says. You see what Paul's getting at here? It's not just the hope that Christ is risen, it's that he's risen to rule and to reign over this world. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is the hope we need all the time. If Christ is risen, then what Jim Elliot says is actually true. We are invincible until Christ is done using us. 
There's nothing that could stop God's plans. Not tyrants like Nero or tyrants like we even experience in this world to a far lesser degree, whether you think that's Newsom or Biden or whoever you might think or the next president. Anybody that's put in charge of America or any throne anywhere, they cannot slow us down because Christ is risen. Slander and ridicule and false accusations and financial difficulties or difficulties in trying to build a building. They can't throw us off course as God's church because Christ is on the throne. Even death cannot throw us off course because we will rise again in Christ. You see what Paul's getting at? This is another version, I believe, of Romans 8.31 where Paul says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, and I might add, as our risen king, then who can be against us? That's our hope. And that leads us to our second hope with Christ, our second point. What we need to know to persevere in faith. So we need to remember Christ's resurrection and his rule. Secondly, we need to remember Christ's word. Christ's word. Look at verse 9. Paul says, for which, and he's speaking of the gospel there that he just mentioned, for which I am suffering. How, Paul? Bound with chains as a criminal. I know this is such a small verse, but there is so much packed in here. And Paul really, he pulls no punches in describing how terrible his circumstances are. He says he's suffering, and we know there was probably a physical element to that, suffering in this Mamertine prison, this hole in the ground with nobody around him, maybe a shortage of food and water or warm clothes and and sickness that he was battling, but he's also struggling spiritually, not in the despair sense, but he's stuck in a hole while his church, the churches that he planted and the people he loves are walking away from Christ. The anxiety of that he talks about in 2 Corinthians, I'm sure that was weighing on him here, that he could be out there trying to fix this problem, but he's stuck. He's stuck, actually bound, it says, with chains as a criminal. Well, it's bad enough to be bound, but then to be labeled a criminal as well? I mean, I found out this, this week is really interesting. The only other time that word criminal appears in the entire New Testament is to describe the two people being hanged next to Jesus on the cross. That'll tell you what they think of Paul right now. Imagine if you spent your whole life, like Paul, proclaiming the gospel, loving people, laying your life down to sacrifice for people and plant churches to give people the the good news, and then at the end of your life, you're called an insurrectionist, a criminal, a menace to society, but not just even a menace, a menace deserving death. This this is not noble suffering that Paul has experienced. This is disgraceful suffering for being faithful to God. So Paul's circumstances are about as bad as they can get. And the church looks like it's, it's fallen apart. The future of the church is in jeopardy. But listen to Paul. He still has hope, doesn't he? Look at the end of verse 9. When Paul says, I am bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Now, what does he mean by that? Does Paul mean that there are, you know, there's power in the word? There's some magic in the words of God that work even when he's stuck? No, that's not what he's talking about. The power is not in the words themselves. The power is in the risen Lord who rules on high and who spoke these words in the first place. The power is in the Lord who promises to use these words to sovereignly save sinners, to keep his word. I love this wonderful promise at the beginning of Jeremiah. 
When Jeremiah is, is doubting and struggling, God comes to him and says, Jeremiah, I am watching over my word. Why? To perform it. To fulfill it. I won't break my word, Jeremiah. I will make sure it accomplishes exactly what I intended. Which is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Now listen, so shall my word be. That goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. See, that's Paul's confidence, and that's our confidence as well. Even if the minister of the word is bound or broken or silenced or even killed, God's word will never be bound. It will never return void. Christ will build his church, often through the suffering of his ministers and his saints. When the preaching of the word happens, Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Oh, haven't we seen countless examples of this? Maybe even in our own life. And even throughout history, I was thinking of so many this week. As thinking just in the early church alone, the book of Acts is filled with this, isn't it? Every time they try to press on the apostles and persecute the apostles, what happens? They preach the word, the church grows. Even when they scatter them, Try to get them as far away as possible. They plant churches wherever they go. The more they oppress them, the more God's word shows to be unbound. Or think of modern day China. The more the government puts their thumb on the church and pushes them underground, the more it grows. As the word is being preached, even from dark corners of China, more and more people are believing. Or one very clear example to me, I was reading part of Pilgrim's Progress this week, one of my favorite books, and we're reading this for our pastor's fellowship. And you may not know this, but John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress from prison. He actually was in prison, too, for a lot of the same reasons that Paul was in prison, for preaching the gospel, for refusing to recant the faith. But the amazing thing is when Bunyan was in prison, he didn't stop preaching. He actually had a hole in the wall. There's a small window in his cell that was taller than him, and it faced another wall. It was not very much room there, but his church would gather outside that wall as he's preaching from prison. And hundreds of people would gather, and more and more people would be saved. And what a beautiful picture of the minister being bound, but the word of God just going forth. And let's not forget, he, he came out of jail after years in prison with Pilgrim's Progress in his hand. The book he wrote, saturated with scripture, probably responsible for bringing people back to the word and sharing the gospel to more people in the world besides the Bible. One of the most influential books in history. The word of God is not bound. And the same is true for us. The same is true for us, that even when it looks terrible for the church and looks like our culture is steering away from what we'd like it to be, the word of God is never bound. Christ will build his church. And how do we respond to that then? Paul tells us. Verse 10. Paul says, Therefore, in light of the word not being bound, therefore I avoid suffering because Christ will save him anyway. No. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 
Paul's response isn't to sit back and say, well, I guess God's going to save him with me or without me. And I'd prefer not to suffer. (laughs) So I'm just going to let go and let God. Let God take care of it all. No, Paul's response is, look, we know that God's word will never fail. We know the elect are out there. All we have to do is go get them. So what are we waiting for? We have a guaranteed victory. We need to get out there. And preach the word, sow the seeds. That's our job as the church. You know, I actually think that a lot of us get very intimidated with evangelism because we misunderstand that job I just mentioned. We misunderstand the purpose for evangelism. Our job as Christians, as the church, is not to save sinners. It's not to wake people up or turn people around and turn their life upside down. No, that's the job of God. The church's job, I love what DeYoung said, is to get the word right and to get the word out. That's what our job is. And we entrust the Lord to change people's life, to bring people out of darkness, and to save sinners. All we are, as we said last week, are farmers, faithful farmers, just planting the seeds of God's word wherever we are, at the dinner table at family gatherings, at the store, at the gym, wherever we go, we're planting that seed so that people can hear. We're not worried about, am I throwing the seed on rocky ground? Am I throwing it on thorny ground? Am I throwing it on good soil? That's not ours to figure out. That is God's and God's alone. We are called to sow that seed, to just keep sowing. Just keep sowing. It sounds like Dory, I know. Just keep sowing. That's our job, sowing that seed. And look, brothers and sisters, we may never see the fruit of that. We may never see God use that preaching of the gospel to save the people we love. Someone else might come along down the line and water that seed, and it may sprout into faith because of God's work. That's what 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 9 talks about. So our role is to be the faithful farmer, to trust that God's word is unbound, and to get God's word out there, and to remember his word will never return void. That's our goal. And that brings us to our last point. We need to persevere in faith by remembering the resurrection and remembering Christ's word, which is unbound. And third, we need to remember Christ's faithfulness. Remember Christ's faithfulness. And we see that in verses 11 through 13. And you can see there right in the beginning of verse 11, it says, the the saying is trustworthy. Now, I hope you remember that we talked about these trustworthy sayings. There are five trustworthy sayings in the pastoral epistles. In 1st and 2nd Timothy and in Titus. This is the only one in 2nd Timothy. We covered most of those during our Advent series, even including this one. And you might remember, you even probably look at the text and say, well, it's, it's indented there. There's a different structure to these last few verses, like a poetic structure. And that's intentional because this was probably a, an early song or an early hymn of the church. Perhaps even, kind of like we did with the Heidelberg Catechism tonight, maybe a call and response for the church. You can see the pronouns change, can't you? They're all changed to we, as in we are saying these things. We are confessing these these things together. But this is a summary of God's faithfulness to us in Christ, meant to encourage Timothy and us to persevere. So let's look at verse 11. It says, The same is trustworthy for... If we have died with him, we will also live with him. Now that death is not the death at the end of our lives, the physical death, or it's not even the death that might come because of martyrdom. 
This is the death of, of dying to ourselves. That happens at conversion. It happens at regeneration. This is the death of that old man when he's crucified on the cross with Christ. As we walk away from our old life because now we serve a new master. We are not our own, as we just said, right? We belong to God, and so now we serve him because we've died to ourselves. Paul talks about this death even more so in Romans 6. Verse 8, listen, it sounds exactly like this passage. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. How, Paul? For the death we have died, or death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, Christ lives, he lives for God. So you then, you also, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the death Paul is getting at. Our death to sin. And brothers and sisters, this is when God's grace, God's faithfulness first breaks into our life, isn't it? In a personal way. God's faithfulness shows up by awaking us from our sin as he applies the work, into, the work of Christ in our lives by faith through the power of the Spirit. This is where the faithfulness of God shows up at first, but it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Now I hope by this point, in 2 Timothy, that everybody here, if you've been hanging with us for a little while, you know this endurance is not in our own strength. We've been hammering that home every single week. We don't endure by our own ability. In fact, it's right at the very beginning of this chapter. Look at verse 1 in chapter 2. You then, my child, be strengthened. How? By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul is telling Timothy here, yes, trust the Lord, not just to save you, but to sustain you. He will fuel your endurance, just as he's promised. He will get you to the end, Timothy. And what is that end? Where does it lead? Well, right here. We will, future tense, reign with him. Now, there's one sense where we're reigning with Christ right now, aren't we? Legally and maybe spiritually is a better way to say that. As we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, as Ephesians 2 talks about. But we will experience this fully and finally when Christ returns. It's one of the most amazing realities of Revelation, isn't it? Listen to what Jesus says in Revelation 3. The one who conquers, the one who endures. That's what Timothy is being told here. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. See, it's not just that Christ has risen and is reigning. It's that Christ will make sure that you are risen and you will reign with him forever. Isn't that a glorious truth? A glorious reality that he's calling Timothy to reflect on? And now the hymn kind of takes a little bit of a negative turn in some ways. Um, it says in verse 12, at the end of verse 12, if we deny him, he also will deny us. This is quoted almost exactly from Jesus. In Matthew 10, verse 33, Jesus says, Whoever denies me before man, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now this denial, just to make sure we understand it, is not somebody who was truly saved from the beginning and then because of persecution they walked away and they've lost their salvation. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about those described in 1 John chapter 2. They went out from us. Why? Because they were not of us. 
If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that all who went out from us are not of us. So these deniers are not those that have lost their salvation. Those, they're actually proving that they were never really saved in the first place. And Paul says here, if you deny him, he will deny you. I know we look at that and think, wow, that's kind of a letdown. All this encouragement and now this almost threat here. God is faithful. God is faithful and he's faithful to judge. And that is hope for the church. Because he's not judging those that are truly his in this way. Judging those who are walking away. The unfaithful that are walking away and proving that they were never really his in the first place. But that doesn't mean we just let this go. This is a really big warning for all of us as well. I think particularly for those that grow up in the church. Kids, if you're part of the church, don't assume just because even if you've been baptized recently or if you grew up in the church, you know the catechisms, you seem to know all the answers, don't assume that you're saved. Think of Abraham's day. His whole family was circumcised. Ishmael was circumcised, but he was not circumcised in the heart. Or as Paul says in Romans 9, not all Israel is true Israel. It's not enough just to be part of the visible people of God. Young and old, if you've been part of the church for one day or, or decades, we all need to trust in our sovereign Lord. We all need to look to Christ in faith so that we won't walk away. Because if we deny him, God will be faithful to judge us and deny us. Now look at this last verse, verse 13. If we, still speaking of the church here, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Now scholars and pastors have disagreed about this verse for a long time, and Chad gave a much broader description than I'm going to give you now in his sermon series uh, through the Advent series. So you can go and look at that, but essentially there are three ways to understand this text. Some people see this as an encouragement. God is going to go get the faithful, kind of the prodigal son or the lost sheep. God is going to go after the wayward. Even when we are unfaithful, God is going to get them, which is absolutely true. But it kind of seems weird to follow a warning, doesn't it? And that's why a lot of people, especially more of the Reformed guys, they, they said, well, no, no, God is faithful again to judge. He just said he's going to judge the deniers. And so now he's saying he's going to judge the faithless. Now, I actually believe that that's true, but I think there's a bit of both going on here. This is absolutely a warning. Don't be faithless. Don't walk away, Timothy, like all those in Asia, because God will be faithful to judge. But it's also an encouragement to us, to Timothy, while others are walking away. Because remember, Paul said in chapter 1, all who are in Asia have walked away from me, have abandoned me. And I'm sure Timothy would look at that and go, well, there it is. I thought God was faithful, but I guess not. His promises must have failed. He's, he's not keeping his own to the very end. And Paul's saying, no, no, Timothy, you're missing the point. Even if many people walk away, even if the church seems to be falling apart, it's they that have failed, not God. It's the faithless that have failed. It's not God who is unfaithful, which is what Paul says in Romans 3. Verse 3 said, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, no way. 
Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. See, that's what Paul is saying. Timothy, God is still true. His promises are still true. Even when the church has fallen apart, God will deal with them. But you stay faithful, and God will stay faithful to you. Brothers and sisters, this, isn't this our hope? This is our hope when, the, when we face death and opposition out there in our world, then we are called to remember Christ's resurrection, to remember that he's on his throne right now, to remember Christ's word that is unbound, that is our hope, and we can continue to spread that word and see God work. But when we face opposition in here, in the church, when people are walking away inside the church, we need to remember God's faithfulness. Because we would be tempted to see our friends and family, even people that we served and loved, walk away from the church and think, what did I do wrong? I've been unfaithful. I've caused that. Or even to despair and think, God caused that. He is unfaithful. But no, the unfaithfulness lies on them. The unfaithful will walk away. Because we know that God has promised in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That's our hope. God will be faithful to his own, even as the church looks like it might be falling apart. So let's trust, uh, let's pray and ask God to help us trust him to believe that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time to be reminded of Jesus, to be reminded of his word and his resurrection and his faithfulness. Help us, Lord, never to lose sight of this. Help us to lean into this when times are difficult, when we have doubts. Help us to encourage one another with these truths, Lord, so that we persevere in faith to the end. Not by our own strength, but by the strength, the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.